Thank you guys for your service. Well, I don't know about you, but um, I'm really enjoying the first day of spring. <coughs> the, uh, the thing that's difficult, I, I went to bed last night with a little tickle in the back of my throat, and I went, what in the world is going on? I feel fine and realize it is spring allergies that are kind of completely out of whack <laughs> because of this weather. So um, I appreciate you guys being here braving the weather and um, in this time kind of between Christmas and New Year's and getting ready for uh, what's going to happen in the new year. Um, I, I think every time we, we have the chance to gather, we ha- really have a really significant privilege, and that is to direct our attention to God's Word. That is a, um, that is a terrifying thing to think about having to do every week and, and, and try to find something that is both going to be edifying, um, but also challenging and also applicable to someone who has just walked in off the street but also someone who has sat in these pews for 50 years. That, that, is, that is not an easy target to hit. But this morning, I think we have a really neat opportunity to talk about, I think everything that we talk about from the scripture is cool and awesome and powerful. But I think this morning, as we begin to turn our attention to the new year, I think, I think what we're going to talk about this morning is really, really important. So I begin with a question. Um, if we had to distill down the most important thing that the church does, what would it be? Churches do a lot of things. Especially this church does a whole lot of things. So if we boil it down to brass tacks and we say, what's the one most important thing that the church does? What would it be? Think about that for a second. Would it be evangelism? Listen, evangelism is important, right? This is yes. This is no. This is I'm soaking wet. <coughs> evangelism is important. I, I, I don't think it's the most important thing that we do. It's important. But I don't think that's what Jesus tells us. Is it worship? Why do we do missions? Because people worship false gods. And we do missions so that people worship the one true God. Is missions the most important thing that we do? Or is worship the most important thing that we do? Troy, I think it's important. As a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, it's the only thing that, the only thing that we will do here that we will do for eternity. So does that mean that we wait it here a little bit? Well, consider what the Lord himself says in Matthew 28. He says that he is with us to the very end of the age and that he's given us authority to go to the nations, baptizing people, baptizing disciples, and teaching them to be obedient to all things, even to the end of the age. Jesus says a disciple is going to worship. A disciple is going to share his faith. A disciple is going to serve. So when we talk about what is the most important thing uh, that, the, that we do as a church, Jesus would say in the Great Commission that discipleship, encapsulates everything. Show me a disciple who doesn't worship. That's a faulty disciple. Show me a disciple who doesn't share his faith. There's something wrong with his discipleship. Show Show me a disciple who doesn't serve. What Bible is he reading if he calls himself a disciple and yet doesn't serve? And so here's here's where we're gonna go. We're kind of in a scene between a series right now. And so today we're gonna talk about the parable of the talents. Next week we're gonna talk about some misconceptions of the church that are how does the church relate to culture, and what are we called to do? Um, how do we? It's a, next week will be kind of fun. I'm really looking forward to uh, doing some extra study for that this week. Um, but we want to ask the question that when we talk about you know these little wristbands that we're wearing, talking about building strong families, we've talked a lot about what that means for our church. But here's the question: At the end of 2016, how do we know that we've done it? It's great to have you know rah rah. Let's all get behind you know, this vision for building strong families, man, I like it. How do we be effective? 
How do we measure effectiveness? How do we just not have another year as a church? How do we have some kind of reckoning? How have we discipled families to be stronger? And so beginning on January 17th, we're going to go into uh, six, maybe seven weeks uh, series talking about what are the mile markers that we really want to be accountable for? What, what are the areas where we want to push our people to say, today, as you evaluate 2015, are you a better disciple today than you were at the end of 2014? Because if Jesus is, that's the most important thing. Guys, we're playing a game if we're not evaluating ourselves according to Jesus' most important standard. And so we're going to do that. We'll have the privilege. Uh, next week, we'll talk about pictures of the church and ways the church uh, interacts with culture. On the 10th, we'll have the privilege of one of our international mission board missionaries, David Petro, who will be preaching for us on that Sunday. So it uh, kind of gives you an idea kind of where we're going. But this morning, we're going to talk about the parable of the talents. And I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but I was doing, um, I don't know where I was going. I was heading towards the mall, which I only do that one time a year, Christmas. And uh, the traffic was bad, and I was being good, you know. I mean, I think I looked at my phone for something, and I look up, and in my rearview mirror, I see blue lights. Blue lights. I don't hear the siren. I just see blue lights. And boy, did I pray really quick. I'm like, what did I do? I mean, the traffic is terrible. I'm not going more than 15 miles an hour. I'm in my lane. Is my, my tags can't be expired because that doesn't happen until January. Do I have a light out? And what happens? He goes right by me, pulls off the side, goes off the dirt, and he's going to get somebody. But for that split second, when you look up and you see the blue lights in your rear view mirror, you want to you do a quick little checkup to see if you're doing everything that you need to be doing. Because automatically, when the authorities show up, you want to make sure that you're doing everything right. And you know what? If you're doing everything right, what do you have to be afraid of? Not a thing. Not a thing. If you're doing something wrong, then you've got a lot to be afraid of. And so we're going to talk about this this morning, is what do we want to be caught doing when Jesus shows back up? Because we don't know when he's showing back up. It could be today. It could be tomorrow. It could be 100 years from now. The Bible says that nobody knows the day or the hour. And so um, what do we want to be caught doing when he shows up? And so we're going to look at the, par- the parable of the talents. That's in Matthew 25. You'll be able to follow along on the screen or in your own copy of the scriptures. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like to follow along in the Pew Bibles, uh, it's page 702 in those Bibles right in front of you. And we'll start with verses 14 and 15 of this parable. Here's what God's Word says. <clears throat> He's talking about the kingdom of heaven. And he says, For it is just like a man going on a journey. And he called his own slaves, and he turned over his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another he gave two talents, and to another he gave one talent, to each according to his own ability. And then he went on his journey. Here's what we're going to talk about. Our first point is this, that life, your life, my life, our life, is all about responsibly using what God has graciously entrusted to us. A lot of times I think we sell ourselves short when we talk about stewardship We think that is only about these little shiny plates that we pass. Stewardship is just about our money. Now, we're going to see that this parable talks about money because talent is a a unit of monetary exchange. Um, But stewardship is about a lot more than money. It is about money, but it's about more than money. And the point is this, that everyone, everyone, every single person sitting here, from front row, work it back, back to the front, front to the back, everybody sitting here has been entrusted 
people with a portion of God's resources. Now, you know what? Paul's portion is not my portion, and my portion is not Reed's portion, and Reed's portion is not Ryan's portion, but every single one of us have been entrusted with a portion of God's resources. The way that that's talked about here in this passage is this man who's going on a journey is giving out money to his slaves, to his servants, and he gives it out in the form of talents. The talent is a unit of monetary measurement, kind of like a dollar bill, except the talent is worth a lot more than a dollar bill. The best way that we can estimate is that one single talent was the equivalent of about 20 years' worth of wages. 20 years' worth of wages. So do the math. The guy that's given five talents is given how many years of wages? A hundred years of wages. Now, how many of you have worked a hundred years? How many of you feel like you've worked a hundred years? <clears throat> Man, how would you like it? What? Now, I see, I can see where you're going. You're going, oh yeah, I see where the application is. The preacher's going to give out talents at the end of the service. No, he's not. <laughs> I, I got about $20 in my wallet. I'll give that away, but that's about all I got. I'll have a talent to give you. How awesome would it be? You know, people would be so upset if they skipped church this morning and we gave out a talent 20 years worth of wages to everybody that showed up on a Sunday morning. You better believe our attendance would like triple next week. Um, So he does this. He gives to one guy basically the equivalent of 100 years worth of wages. To the next guy, he only gives two talents. But in in that gift that he gives him to manage, he basically gives an entire adult working life, 40 years worth of salary. And to one, he gives... Uh, one talent, which is the equivalent of about one year. Now, when we talk about talents, we automatically, we talk, when we talk about our build strong strategy and investing, we talk about investing our time, talent, and treasure. Uh, certainly, when we talk about um, using what God has given us, part of our stewardship is what we just did, giving back to God and recognizing that he owns it all. Um, and we give back a portion, 10%, to say thank you for uh, entrusting us with everything that you've entrusted with, us with. But what has he given us? It's not just treasure. It's not just money. He's also given us all kinds of things. He's given us time. We invest our time. You are using your time, or better yet, investing your time by being in worship today. You're investing your time by being in a Bible study, a small group. You're investing your time by serving in the community. But there are also talents, not unit of measure talents, and not, you know, America's Got Talent, you know, The Voice, or American Idol. A talent is not just something that you can use on a stage. A talent, I love the way, I think it was J.C. Ryle who said this. He said, a talent is anything whereby which you can glorify God. Think about that for a second. A talent is anything whereby which you can glorify God. So, guys, listen, here's what that means. That means that Keith Patterson's sense of humor (laughs) can be a talent. He can use it to glorify God. Anything that God has given you. And so think through, what what has God given you? He's given you all kinds of things. He's given you spiritual gifts. We believe that every person who's a follower of Christ has a spiritual gift. He's given all of us influence. I mean, here's the thing that's amazing, is John's influence is different than mine, because he's got a whole completely different sphere of influence. John will reach people in his neighborhood and his workplace that I will never meet. Ken travels all over the southeast United States. He's got a chance to be a domestic missionary in a sense that I'll never be. I don't travel like he does. Every single one of you have a uh, measure of influence that you can use as a talent to glorify God. He's given you knowledge. He's given you health, strength, reason, intellect, affections, and privileges. And you can use all of that to glorify God. That's how you use responsibly what he's entrusted to us. I love the way that it talks about how God gave, it, gave out the gifts. He gave one guy five. He gave one guy two. He gave one guy one. Why? 
What's the Bible say? To each according to their ability. Now listen, somebody came up and handed me a talent, handed me 20 years worth of their wages, I would freak out being responsible for that. That would, be, that would just be, wow. Somebody came out and handed you five talents worth of their income, a hundred years worth of whatever your salary is, and says, hey, I want you to take care of this while I'm gone. How long are you gone? Don't know yet. But I want, you to, I want you to make it work. I want you to increase it. I want you to grow it. Wow, that's crazy. It says that he gave it according to their ability. So the reason the one talent guy didn't get the five talents is he was not a five talent manager. He was a one talent manager. And the point here is that God knows our capacities, our gifts, our opportunities, and our circumstances. So when we talk about being a disciple and a disciple who shares the gospel with others, you know, it's, it's funny. When we talk about evangelism, you know, the first thing people, what the first thing is that people tell me, well, I'm no Billy Graham. Like, that's the mark? That's the mark for being an evangelist? Listen, and I don't mean this to sound sacrilegious, love Billy Graham, think he's a wonderful guy, but we've already got a Billy Graham. We need a Josh Cannon. We need a Richard Given. You know, we need, we, we need a Jonathan Brown. God's already given us Billy Graham. We need to be who we are because God knows who you are. And he knows all of those things that he has given you to use for his glory. So he knows what your abilities are, what your circumstances are, he, he, who you are around to be able to share with. And I love this because what it says is that one of the coolest privileges of being a Christian is discovering how God has wired you and how he has made you and learning to use all of that for his glory. That is cool. Because you know what? There's not a playbook for you. Not, not explicitly written out. Because you are you and he is him. And they are them. You are you. And God says, use everything that I have entrusted you to serve me and to serve others. So regardless of whether you're a five-talent, a two-talent, or a one-talent person, God has entrusted you with a lot of responsibility. He's given you a portion of his resources. So don't covet. Don't covet. Don't say, man, I, I, I wish I had no, Keith's sense of humor. When God made Keith, he broke the mold. Oh, there we, and all God's people said. <laughs> um, don't covet. Be content with how God made you because he made you to glorify him. You don't have to be someone else to glorify him. You can be him just the way you are, and regardless of what he's entrusted you with, he's given you a great responsibility. The story continues in verses uh, 16 through 23, and the point here is that while the master is gone and he's entrusted us with his, um, his, his, uh, his talents, how we wait expresses our character. Look at verses 16 through 23. So immediately, the man who had received five talents, he went out and he put them to work and he earned five more. And in the same way, the man with two earned two more. But the man who had received one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's talent. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with him. And the man who had received five talents approached, presented five more talents, and said, Master, you gave me five talents. Look, I've earned five more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. And then the man with two talents also approached, and he said, Master, you gave me two talents. Look, I've earned two more talents. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of 
many things, share your master's joy. And you may not realize this, but um, every single one of us are in this Bible passage. And it doesn't have Rachel Osborne's name on it. It doesn't have Bruce Irvin's name on it. But did you see what happened? The master entrusted his servants with part of his riches and then went on a long journey. And they are waiting for him to return. And in verse 18, he leaves. In verse 19, he comes back. And friends, every single one of us live between verse 18 and verse 19. The master has entrusted his resources to us, and we are waiting for him to come back. The question is, what are we going to do while we're waiting? Well, we'll talk about this. We work. And it says, you see this uh, really, I think, beautifully in the way that it's described. There are all these action verbs that um, go to talk about the first servants and the second servants, way that they work. It says the master gave the talents and went on his journey. And then what's the very first word that pops out next? Immediately, the guy that got the five talents, he, he immediately went out and he put them to work. So he found a way to take his five talents and from the start, from the crack of the starter gun, he, he is off and running, working happily and with willing initiative. And for both the first and the second servant, the second servant is say, yeah, he did just like the first guy did, working faithfully with what he had. And he took his two talents and he turned it into two more. Each servant's work happens over a long period of time. We don't know how long, but they are ready when the master returns. And their many years, perhaps, of service is summarized in three short verses. The master comes back, not to recruit servants, but to hold them accountable. And when he comes back, it's really it's, it's precious to see. It's, it's neat to see how the servants respond. Because beginning in verse, oh, verse 20, the man who had received five talents approached and presented five more talents. And look at his response. He says, Master, five talents you gave me. Look, behold, there's five more now. He is bubbling over with excitement tell his master what he has done with what he has been entrusted with. And friends, we see very much here that our character shows in how we work. What you do with the resources that God has given you is a million-dollar opportunity for you to say how high or how low you think of Christ and accountability to him. And guys, let me just say this to you, especially to our young men, okay? And I don't say this to anyone in particular, but I say this because where our culture is at. You cannot be a 35-year-old boy who lives in your parents' basement in your underwear playing video games at 2 o'clock in the morning. There, there is a crisis in our culture where we feel like we are entitled to everything. And you know what our grandparents knew? You have to work for it. You've heard money doesn't grow on trees. Guys, here's the point. It's worse than that. This is not just about uh, a work ethic or reclaiming America. This is theological. How you work says what you think about God. And if you are lazy, then you say, God's not going to hold me accountable. And friend, let me just tell you, don't shirk accountability to God. That's a serious thing. We have to learn. (laughs) Jesus doesn't say, hey, listen, I'm going away and I'll come back. So here's what I want you to do. Just hang in there. Just hang in there. No, go to work and work faithfully until he comes back. Work hard and take joy in working hard so that that way when he comes back, you don't go, "Uh uh-oh, blue lights in the rearview mirror, he caught me. You get to go, 
Look, behold what I have done with what you have given me. That's why we work hard. Not so we get a gold watch after working for 40 years. Not so we get our name on a plaque. We work hard so that people know that we work hard because of the God who we serve. Work while you wait. Now some of us go, man, these, two, these first two dudes, they could be a lot more humble. They're like, you know, patting themselves on the back. No, that's not really it. That's not really it. What do they recognize as the basis for the work that they have done? Master, you gave me five talents. Without you giving me what I have received, I would have nothing to work with. They already acknowledge the priority of God's work, so God lets them rejoice in the posterity of their work. God's work is prior and foundational, and because they recognize, hey, God, we are just working with what you have given us, then God lets them throw a little party to celebrate what he has done through them. He doesn't say, well, you know, dear worker, you should have said, God, look what you have done through me. No, they've already acknowledged that, and he allows them to celebrate the work that they have been able to do with the raw material that he has given them. And basically, both the first and the second guy get the same same reward. The master, Jesus, God, says, you know what, guys? You did awesome. Good job. I am so pleased. You have been faithful with a few things. So guess what happens for hard workers? You know what the reward for hard workers is? You've been faithful with a few things. So now I'll put you over many things. You know what the reward for hard work is? More work. Anybody ever gotten a promotion? Man, you love being a salesperson. Salesperson is what you do. And now they make you a manager. So now you're managing 20 salespeople. And you've never managed salespeople before because you're really good making the sale. And now you have a lot more responsibility because it's not just you. Now it's you multiplied through all of the people that you manage. And so the reward for hard work is more work. And he says, enter into the joy of your master. It's interesting that they both get the same exact commendation, reward, and praise, because it's not so much what you have, because one guy had five, the one guy had two. It's not so much what you have, but it's what you do with it that counts. In the third and final uh, picture that we'll look at here in the scripture, verses 24 through 30, we find out what happens to the third servant when he is called for accountability. And we will see here um, our third and final point that no work is not an option. No work is not an option. Look at verses 24 through 30. Then the man who had received one talent also approached and said, Master, I know you. You're a difficult man, reaping where you haven't sown and gathering where you haven't scattered seed. So I was afraid and went off and hid your talent in the ground. Look, you have what is yours. But his master replied to him, You evil, lazy slave, if you knew that I reap where I haven't sown and gather where I haven't scattered, then you should have deposited my money with the bankers. And when I returned, I would have received money back with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have more than enough. But from the one who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. And throw this good-for-nothing slave into the outer darkness, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here's the pity. After the first two guys had been super producers in the master's company, the third guy produced 
Nothing. Zero. So what do we think about this guy? You know, is he just really super conservative? You know, and he's not wanting to mess with God's resources, the master's resources. <clears throat> After all, he's not a prodigal. What did the prodigal do when he got a, got a buttload of money? Fast times, loose women. So he spent, he spent his riches on things that would have been immoral and selfish. This guy didn't do that. So do we, we view him as higher status in God's eyes than the prodigal? Well, no, because the prodigal remembered what his father was like and came back to him and received the father's grace. When this master shows up, what's he do? He deprecated the master's character. Instead of a reverent fear of his master, he has irreverent contempt and even says, you know what? You know why I did what I did? Because you are who you are. You're a hard man. You're a hard man. Now I'm going to work for you, give you something that you didn't, you didn't do. So he didn't take any blame for his own action. He put it on the master, which interestingly sounds just like Adam. Adam, did you eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil? No, the woman you gave me. No responsibility. No production. No fear. No respect. And the Bible says here that just because you only have one talent is not an excuse for you not working. It's proportionate. You are to work with what you have. But instead, this guy has a fascinating spirit of a lack of adventure, preoccupied with his own security, unwilling to take risks, trusting that God would be more pleased with audacious faith than with a conservatism that does nothing. And he fails to understand something that I think is crucially important for us. When the master gave him a talent, he gave him a mission. When the master gave him a talent, he gave him a mission. And I think in our day and age, we've become so comfortable that we think that our talents, the things that God has entrusted to us, were for our own benefit. They're not. God has entrusted you with a portion of his resources that you will use it to serve God and to serve others. Because that's the name of the game. Here's the thing, an interesting correlation, okay? Back to the garden. God gives a command to Adam and Eve and he tells them to be fruitful and multiply. Now, I think uh, you automatically, when you hear that verse, you think there's one answer for what that means. And that's biological reproduction, okay? When an adult man and an adult woman know each other in a biblical way, the fruit of that union is children, okay? That's certainly true. But you think about it, they are to exercise dominion over every facet of the world. So they are to make the world more fruitful, period. They're to take grain and make a field of grain. They're to take, uh, maybe not an apple tree, they're to take a pear tree and make a grove of pear trees. They are to be fruitful and to multiply. And so when you take an adult human male, an adult human female, the result of that union is a human baby. Okay, what happens when you take an adult male Christian and an adult female Christian, what's the fruit of that union? Spiritual babies. Christian babies. Not in the sense that we don't, we don't, we don't, we don't believe that we're, we're born sinners, we're not born Christians, but the point is there is a fruit that is born Physically, there's a fruit that's born spiritually. And so here's, here's the thing. When we talk about discipleship being the, the, the big thing that we're called to, 
There is no true discipleship where there is not multiplication. Okay, if God expects the natural result of a male-female union to be uh, children, fruit, there is an expectation that Christians will bear spiritual fruit. This is not just talking about biological children. This is spiritual fruit. God expects us to multiply, not just have enough to, so everybody gets a grape at the dinner table, but for there to be bounty, that there is fruit in the sense that there is character that is produced in your life that makes it look like you have spent time with Jesus. That there are people who are now a part of the kingdom of God because you have been in their sphere of influence. Because the command to be a disciple is not to memorize scripture or to get a perfect attendance pin or get your name on a plaque for how much you gave to a project at a church. It is to reproduce spiritually. And guess what? The world, with all of its might, its resources, and its effort, cannot produce one thing spiritually. The only people that can produce spiritual fruit are spiritual people. People that have been born again. And so remember that this whole idea of being afforded a talent is for the purpose of mission. And that if your version of discipleship is a new and improved you, you've read the wrong book. The goal of your discipleship is good, good things to others. Glorifying God. And listen, this, is, this does not mean, okay, for those of you that go, I'm not Billy Graham. I understand that. Can you cook? I know you. Some of y'all can really cook. Good. And so you take somebody like a Reed or a Keith or an Ed or a Gil or a Jonathan. You take somebody who's not afraid to speak the gospel because that's not your gift, that's not, that's not what you do, and you cook the best meal you have and you invite your lost friend over and then invite Jonathan to come too. And Jonathan, he can't cook worth a darn. But you know what? He can speak and maybe he's more articulate in sharing the gospel. And so now you can use your gift of cooking to serve the gospel even though you're not the one who's primarily speaking it to your friend. The the point is this, use what God has entrusted to you for his service and for the betterment of others. That's what we're called to do in discipleship. Yet this third guy, he didn't get it. And oddly enough, his own words convict him. He says, listen, I didn't work because I knew you were a hard man. Listen, you better work hard for a hard man because the accountability with him is not going to be a gentle process. And he says, listen, I'm not expecting you to double. But if you're not going to work hard, at least put it in the bank. And I'd have been happy with simple interest. Whatever you do with your talent, don't bury it in the ground. You know how you bury your talent in the ground? You only work for me, myself, and I. You know, isn't God impressed with me? Not if you haven't borne fruit. No, he's not. You can memorize this book cover to cover. And if you're not about glorifying God through your knowledge and sharing it with others, Congratulations for the certificate, and it will burn in hell just as much as you will. It's a serious issue that we cannot be content with using God's resources for ourselves. And he tells us that how the day of reckoning will go is based on how we receive our responsibility with what he's entrusted to us. You know what? That's going to be a little bit different for everybody because what he's entrusted to you is different than what he's entrusted to me. So what's the point as we wrap this up? The point of the parable is this. Jesus has not returned yet. So again, we're, we're between verses 18 and 19. We're waiting for the master return. 
what will you do with your weight? What will you do with your weight? Because right now, we're all waiting. We don't know when the day will come, but we are all waiting. What are you doing? Well, beyond the obvious, you're waiting. But are you just waiting? Because you shouldn't be. You should wait and work. Because the truth is that saving faith is always serving faith. You are saved from sin, but you're saved for service. And we must always remember that there's a connection between what we believe and what we do. We believe the gospel. We are born again. And those who are born again will always and inevitably begin to live out their faith. Always. If it doesn't happen, something didn't take. Something's not right. And so don't reduce the Christian life to being something that is only about new life for you. It has got to be about serving others. And a Christian who, according to this passage, is a good-for-nothing slave is never pleasing to the Lord. If at the end of 2015 you don't look more like Jesus than you did at the end of 2014, then no matter what your stock portfolio looks like, 2015 has been a terrible year for your soul. If there is not anybody who is closer to the kingdom because they're closer to you, then I don't care what other measures you use to evaluate your success, 2015 has been a hellacious year for you. And so how do we really try to understand that there is no such thing as discipleship without multiplication? I think there are two questions that are really helpful for us. And we conclude with this. What are you doing to serve the Christians around you? And I think it's important that we lead with that question. I think, you know, we look at the hugeness of the task of a lost world around us. And we go, well, wh- why don't we put what we're doing for non-Christians first? No, the Bible says how we love our family is different than how we love the outside world. We love the outside world. Uh, but e- even you, you love your family more than you love maybe your extended family or more you, than you love, you don't express your love in the same way. So the Bible says, you know, we got to do good, but we've especially got to do good to the household of faith. What are you doing to serve other Christians? Don't just assume, yeah, I'm serving other Christians. How? How often? How frequently? And is it actually, are you sacrificing while you're serving or are you just part of a rotation? Is, is your heart involved with what you're doing? So what are you doing? How are you serving other Christians? And secondly, how are you serving people who don't even know that they need Jesus yet? Now, that's, that's a huge question. But we cannot go through life just assuming that surviving to 2017 is winning. We have to have some vital measures for how we're growing in our discipleship. And I think that discipleship is both internal, fruit being produced in our life, character being produced in our life, and spiritual fruit being produced in new believers, baby Christians uh, coming about because of our efforts and our influence. I close with this quote. I don't know who it's from. It says this, one, one person who receiving seed to sow has at seed time not sown it, inflicts loss upon his master, even though he has not lost the seed. Yet there is a loss in proportion as there might have been gain if he would have sown at the right time. Friends, if you are a Christian here today, God has given you seed to sow. Some of that seed needs to be sown in some areas of your own life as you progress in Christian maturity and personal discipleship. Some of that seed is to be scattered indiscriminately over this whole wide world because it needs to grow, not just in your own life, but around the world.
Question, please. God, what an awesome privilege you give us to serve you. And I pray that this morning you will help us to confess in the deepest part of our hearts that even after we have worked to our utmost, we still have not done everything of which you are worthy. God, you are an incredible God. You are a good, good Father who loves us, who provides for us, who sent his son to die on a cross for us. And so God, help us to demonstrate our tremendous love for you by not shirking our responsibility to be stewards of what you have entrusted to us. God, may we desire in our hearts and in our hands and feet to serve you in new, fascinating, joyful, and hard ways in 2016 in ways that we have not served you in 2015. Because God, you're worthy of our efforts. And we thank you for entrusting us as your children and as your ambassadors to spread the word of your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.